the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All we need you to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside of the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can go to or use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you are in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, Tonight, of course, we have our midweek Old Testament service. Tonight is a sad story, but it's uh, really a necessary one. Uh, First Kings chapter 14, we're going to kind of finish off the Rehoboam story before moving on to the other kings of both Israel and Judah. And then, of course, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the Date Day edition of the program, and she would love to hear from you as well. Let me get to some questions, and then we will uh, wait for your phone calls. Uh, Here is a question, anonymous from our mobile app. Uh, One of my close friends, who is an unbeliever, One of my close friends who is an unbeliever holds my past sin against me and won't let it go. She always brings up what I said or did while I was drunk. I apologize for it. I know I'm forgiven, but it's always discouraging to hear. What can I do so that she'll stop holding me to that? Two things. One, anonymous. The first thing is have no expectations of an unbeliever who doesn't understand what forgiveness is. Um, you know, the, the the one thing that we have to accept if we're truly repentant for our sin is we have to accept responsibility. And uh, what I would approach this, this, this person with, this woman with, is, uh, look, I know what I did, and I'm sorry for it. And I, I pray that one day you'll be able to forgive me. Jesus has forgiven me. But I'm going to be praying for you. And then if she's going to keep throwing it in your face, maybe it's just one of those things uh, that you need to, to unhinder yourself. The, 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 Paul writes to the church of the Hebrews, he said, uh, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And sometimes those old relationships are, are um, hindrances to our walk with Jesus Christ. So I don't think you should have any expectations at all. I think you own it. Um, Ask her point blank. Uh, I've asked for forgiveness. Why do you keep bringing it up? And then let her know that this might be 
something that will affect your friendship, your ability to be with her. Remember what you want, because she's a friend and she's an unbeliever. And I'm assuming it's a girl, but but that may not be the case. Um, what you want is you want her to get saved. So the, the best thing you can do is own your sin. Ask her for forgiveness. Tell her you deserve all of her scorn. However, you've got to move on with the freedom that you found in Jesus Christ dying for your sins. And then live your life with joy. Don't let her push your buttons. Don't let her affect your walk with the Lord. And at one point, what the Holy Spirit is going to say to her is, look, you've tried to bring him or her down, but you still feel with joy. She's still filled with joy. So just no expectations. Uh, understand that's what unbelievers do. They hold on to things. And a lot of it is because they're unwilling to forgive people who've hurt them in their life. And you being able to say, you know, I've forgiven people and have asked for forgiveness. I'm going to heaven. Uh, that's something she has to deal with. So I, without more information, I can't be more specific than that. Um, there are things that you could have done that were so horrible that um, as an unbeliever, it'd just be impossible for her, for her to forgive. Um, pray for her salvation and show her who Jesus is in your life. Good question. Here is a question from Havana. Um, she says, is it okay for Christians, I'm a woman, to be in bodybuilding contests where the dress is pretty skimpy? Yeah, Havana, I think it is. I've had this question um, a long, long time ago in the program. Uh, and I always answer at the beach, you know, at the beach, um, immodest dress isn't immodest at all. Everybody's dressed the same way. Um, and I think the same thing applies for bodybuilding. I think the whole idea is to show the body you're not doing it in a sexual way. And certainly that's not your intent. Uh, but I, I don't find any problem with the modesty in that. That's one of those disputable areas. Paul says in Romans fourteen twenty three, anything not of faith is sin. So as long as this isn't your conscience being bothered, then it's okay to do it. And you understand the context uh, in which you are dressed uh, pretty skimpily, to use your words. So, yeah, I would say it is. And if the Lord gives you the freedom to do it, then what you've got to do, Havana, is just forget what anybody else might say or think. And then make sure that uh, whatever you're doing in bodybuilding, is uh, God is the one who's getting the glory. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, here's a question from Margaret. She says, what is the major reason people go to hell? How bad does sin have to be? Well, Margaret, all sin, unforgiven, condemns somebody to hell. You see, nobody who's sinful can go to heaven. It's that simple. And, um, you know, we, we humans, we have sort of a, a, a curve according to sin. Somebody else's sin is a lot worse than ours. So what I'm doing really isn't all that bad. But we have to understand the holiness of God. And by understanding the holiness of God, we need to know that all sin, any sin, separates us from God. That's why uh, Isaiah would say, Come, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Speaking of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, all sin gets wiped out. Now, you can have some really, really bad sins and you can be for, forgiven of those sins. But even if they're little tiny ones remain and you were unrepentant and those sins weren't forgiven because you didn't ask Jesus into your heart, well, those sins, Margaret, would send you to hell. So the only real reason, you said the major reason, the only real reason that people get sent to an eternity in hell is because they chose to be independent of God. They rejected Jesus Christ and the the, the, the free gift of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. They've rejected that. And so their sin disqualifies them. Margaret, there's a parable that Jesus tells about the, the, the man who is dressed at the wedding banquet uh, without wedding clothes. Now, we know the wedding clothes are the fine white linen of the saints, uh, meaning, meaning our sins have been cleansed away, and so we're pure. And somebody tried to get into the wedding banquet with everybody in, in, in their fine white linen outfit. And then uh, this man tried to get in another way. Maybe tried to get in by being a good person. Maybe tried to get in 
by working hard. Maybe tried to get in uh, other ways. Uh, maybe, maybe even seeking another God. But the point is, he was the one that stood out at the wedding banquet. And he's the one that would be forcibly removed. Sin is inherent in all of us. Every human who's ever lived is guilty. And I said every human. And only the blood of Jesus Christ takes away our sin. So it's not a matter of how bad the sin have to be. Any sin. One of the great things about coming to Jesus, Margaret, is that the minute you repent and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Now, this is more than just lip service. But the moment you repent and you truly rely on Jesus Christ and you're born again, then positionally you are without sin. All your sin, past, present, and future, those sins are forgiven. Sins that you haven't even thought about doing yet. You didn't know you were going to do, even sins you don't want to do in your future. All of those sins are completely and totally forgiven. And that's why Jesus can say, oh, beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And we come to heaven based on the work that he's done on our behalf. So this isn't about a a scale of sin. This is about any and all sin disqualifies us from sin. Margaret, one of the the examples that, that I heard a long time ago, I was in Bible college, and one of the pastors there who was teaching um, and this just worked for me, so if it works for you, great. But um, he, he said, assume that for a moment God tells you that there is, um, there can be no sin in heaven and sin is the color blue. And so when your life comes before Jesus to be judged, any shade of blue at all disqualifies you. Now, obviously, Margaret, for me, my sins were so severe that I would be that dark, dark, dark blue. Somebody else who's really a good person, I mean, really, really a good person, maybe their blue is just very light, pastel-y, and and very attractive and almost comforting. You'd say, wow, compared to, to Ron's dark, dark blue, this person's a saint. But we have to remember that all blue disqualifies us from heaven. And so Jesus, he said, wipes away the blue. And that was a picture that has stuck with me now for for almost 30 years. So good question, Margaret. Thanks a lot. Marco asks, how can people have free will and God be sovereign all at the same time? Marco, uh, I think the problem we have in reconciling our free will and God's sovereignty is that we truly don't understand either. You know, we, we think God's sovereign. We have a, a, a tendency to view God as causing or making everything that happens, happens. Like God is sovereign, so everything he does, he's just doing it, he's causing it. And that's not what sovereignty is. God's sovereignty, his sovereign power is never more evident than what Romans 8.28 says, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God uses even those who are his enemies and even those plans to rebel against God, he uses all of those things to accomplish his sovereign will. Now, that's real power. So God is sovereign. We can't deny that. But his sovereignty is expressed to us with such power that even the choices we make to reject him or to rebel against him, he uses those things to accomplish his will. I'll give you just a couple of quick examples. Satan is called a servant of God. Now, Satan certainly doesn't want to be a servant of God. He hates God. We know all of that's true. But Satan is a servant of God. Nebuchadnezzar was called a servant of God. The Assyrians... The, the Greeks, the, the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians, they were all called servants of God. And, and what that means is that God used them to judge his own people, Israel. Now, that doesn't mean they're in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is, but the rest of them. It just means that God used their natural ego, their natural... Um, hunger for for power to accomplish his will. So God is sovereign. That's indisputable. 
But it's also true that from the very beginning, God has always insisted on choice. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God knew exactly what Adam and Eve were going to do because God lives outside of time and space. Adam and Eve did not. But he knew what they were going to do. Still, instead of forcing them to live under subjection to him, he gave them the freedom in a perfect, magnificent creation. He gave them the freedom of choice because God wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve and there would be no relationship really if God forced them to love him and to serve him. So God gave them a choice. Now God, and I'm going to put this new in terms because we have to remember God knows what they were going to do, but it's almost like God is saying, I, I hope they choose the right, I hope they make the right choice. But they still had to make a choice and that's free will. Marco, you can get up tomorrow and you can decide because God has given you the freedom to do so, you can decide whether or not you're going to obey God today and be blessed or disobey him and cause problems and pain. You get to make that choice, and whatever choice you make doesn't mean God's sovereignty is violated at all. So we have free will, and there's no tension when you understand correctly what free will is and what sovereignty is. We've been given free will. We can make a choice to do whatever it is we're going to do. And the fact that God knows the choice we're going to make doesn't mitigate against us making that choice. So I hope that makes sense to you, Marco. It's it's really something there's no tension. And for centuries, people have been creating tension. And there's so much written about this and so many different conclusions. But it's really simple. You have to choose Jesus He chose you. If you choose Jesus, you're going to find out he chose you because he chooses those he knows are going to choose him. I will have mercy on who I have mercy. I'll judge those who I judge. Well, who's he going to have mercy on? Those he knows are going to be his. So I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585. Phones are quiet on this Wednesday. Here is a question from Lionel. He says, Pastor Ron, I feel like my faith has deserted me because I am really afraid of dying. Shouldn't Christians embrace death just to be with Jesus? Um, Lionel, um, you know, the logic of your question um, can't be denied. I want to be with Jesus more than I want anything else in life. But the other reality here is that I, I don't want to die. If the rapture happens today, I'll be praising hallelujah and all the way to heaven with Jesus in that nanosecond it takes. But we have been built by God with an instinct, natural instinct to survive. You know, if 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 you just use nothing but human logic, if we went to the doctor and got a terminal cancer diagnosis, we would we would respond with praise the Lord, I'm going to be with Jesus. But we don't want to. We fight. And sometimes that fight is a part of God's plan for our life. And he uses it to get glory for himself. But please don't feel like your faith has deserted you because you're afraid of dying. Now, don't let that fear of dying paralyze you, keep you from serving God with joy. I mean, if if you are so afraid of dying that you can't have joy in your, your witness and your testimony for the Lord, well, then you've got some issues that need to be dealt with, but but don't feel guilty. And I think this is what the devil does to us. Don't feel guilty because you want to live. That's just a normal instinct for human beings. Uh, I am not afraid of dying. You said you are. But Lionel, I'm personally terrified of the process of dying. Uh, and it gets it's even more so the older I get. Um, and yet there's that tension, I use that term in the last question, that tension between, yeah, I want to see Jesus, but I don't want to be there one second before he's ready for me. And when I go to the doctor and when I have um, uh, issues, um, I'm afraid. That's just natural. I don't want to die. Um, I want to serve Jesus with all my heart, soul, and strength for as long as I'm here. 
You know, uh, Lionel, I had, starting in 2017, some some heart issues. It was a, just a freak thing, a virus attached to my heart. I had never had any health problems at all, and, and I was healthy, uh, strong heart, never, never a problem. And all of a sudden, my heart wasn't pumping blood out. And I went through a couple of years where it was really difficult. Um, they, they're trying to, they said my heart would never resume um, normal function. Um, uh, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of scary when you haven't had any any um, health episodes. And I had to deal with this very issue. And I, I remember one day in particular, there was a, an Easter Sunday. Now, I'm a guy, Lionel, who works. I, I like to work. I love what God allows me to do. And except for taking a vacation uh, we go out, Paul and I go for 11 or 12 days, um, go see our kids and stuff. We'll go to the beach in California. Um, except for that, I don't miss. I do a Wednesday night Bible study, Friday night Bible study, and three Sunday services. And I don't miss. In 27 years, I've never missed a communion Sunday. I want to be here. This isn't me saying, I'm a, you know, just follow my example. It's not that at all. I love what I do. And I remember 2017, I missed Easter. I was up and I was dressed. I wear a suit one time a year in church. It's Easter. And I was dressed and ready to go. And uh, the result was um, my heart started behaving erratically. And I passed out. And I was going to, every time I'd get up, I'd keep passing out. It was a real tough thing. Um, so I've had to deal with this very thing. I was more afraid, actually, of missing church, not being able to do what God's called me to do. I was more afraid of that than the actual process of dying itself. But um, I, I really had to deal with these emotions, and the emotion—it's just—it's—it's it's just natural. God gave me a great peace over this. Uh, I, I shouldn't embrace death, um, but but I also am not going to let a fear of dying. Rob me of the joy of doing what Jesus has me do. So, Lionel, I went to that extra uh, explanation because I really wanted you to understand that that normally these are lies brought to you by the enemy, and uh, there's nothing wrong with being afraid of dying. Just don't let being afraid keep you from doing what God's asked you to do. This will be the last question for this half of the program. Poet hope I got the name right, but that's what it says, P-O-E-T. You, meaning me, have expressed an anti-alcohol position in many of your teaching sermons. Paul told Timothy to drink wine, so why don't you agree? Well, you've got to understand, and poet, this is one of the reasons that we're a study to show ourselves approved. Work men, work women, rightly dividing the word of God. Uh, the reason Paul told Timothy to drink wine, he made it clear, was because of the issues you have with your stomach. Now, we have to remember, in the ancient world, water, clean water, was really difficult, and it caused all kinds of health problems. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is drink wine. The other thing we have to remember is that the alcohol content of wine and other alcoholic beverages today is far, far greater than it was in the Apostle Paul's day. So everybody drank wine Why? Because water was hard to get. And so wine would be served at meals. It was a completely different time. The anti-alcohol position that I've taken in my messages, poet, simply because in 27 years of being a pastor, I have seen the damage and the pain caused by alcohol. And there has never been a single virtue communicated to me about alcohol in those nearly 27 years. I've seen families destroyed. I've seen careers and reputations destroyed. I've seen children uh, grow up and become drunks or drug addicts on their own, following the example that was set in their homes. There just isn't anything of value, of virtue, regarding alcohol at all, period, ever. So I think I would agree with Paul if I lived 2,000 years ago or nearly 2,000 years ago, I think I would say, uh, Timothy, drink some wine, settle your stomach. 
But you see, Timothy wasn't drinking recreationally. I would imagine that if you're advocating drinking, it's it's recreational. If you be honest with yourself, poet, what has it ever done for you? And could you stop? Now, most of the time people say, oh, I could stop anytime I want, and I'll challenge them, okay? I'll tell you what, stop for two months. Sometimes I'll say stop for a week. Well, I don't want to. I could, but I don't want to. Well, the real reason is they can't do. Paul said, I'm free to do all things, but not all things are beneficial. So, poet, for me to change my position, you'd have to convince me that alcohol has had a positive benefit in your life that outweighs the benefits of being closer to Jesus. Compromise witness, things that you've said and done. Jesus says, I want all of you. And by me saying, I'm, this isn't an anti-alcohol statement, I'm just saying, for Christians, there's never a reason ever, ever, ever to pick up any alcohol and drink it. Nothing good has ever come from it. And lots and lots of pain. I don't want to be mastered by anything, and I hope that'd be the case for you as well. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our show today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our second half hour on this wednesday afternoon 340-9585 we'd love to have your calls and or questions here is a question sent in by kent He said, Jesus gave his disciples authority over demons and the power to heal. Do we still have that same authority and power? Uh, Kent, the answer is no. And here's one of those hermeneutics that we've got to be very, very careful of. When we read the Bible, we have to see what it says without making any assumptions. Now, unfortunately, we make assumptions based on our frame of reference or or, or, uh, our perception of of Jesus's promise. Jesus gave his disciples. We just studied this a few weeks ago in the gospel of Mark. And this was a one-time mission. You all remember the next time the disciples are seen trying to cast out demons, they can't do it. Jesus and, and Peter, James and John are up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they come down and the disciples are arguing with the Jewish authorities because they couldn't cast the demon out of this, this, uh, this uh, father's son Um, So this was a one-time specific. He gave them. And that's a very important thing to understand. Now, I realize that people say, well, they were disciples, and I'm a disciple, so if they had it and God doesn't change, then I have that authority. That's just bad study habits. So he gave them authority. It was a borrowed authority, a borrowed power. And it's actually not the not the Greek word dunamis, which is what we normally come to associate with power, but it was exuiza, which means the authority or the right. And so Jesus said, here's what I want you. You go out two by two, and I will give you this authority over demons. I'll give you the authority to heal diseases. And so he did that to them. That does not mean he gives that power to us. Now, there will be some times, and, and remember, the whole point of giving them authority was to bring people to Christ, to, to, to tell them about this kingdom of God that was on its way and, in fact, was here in the person of the Christ or the Messiah. Um, there are times when he will give us the authority to do something miraculous. I have personally um, cast out demons uh, in the past, not often. It's not. I don't want to make myself sound like I'm um, some spiritual powerhouse. That's simply not true. Um, but but there was a, an incident, and I and Jesus gave me the authority to do that. I couldn't do that on my own. And in fact, the Book of Acts lists a very um, 
significant story about the seven sons of Siva who went out in their own power. And I've I've counseled Christians all the time when they go binding this devil and all that stuff to be careful about that because you have no authority to do that. Our authority comes in a case-by-case basis when we're with Jesus. And the power to do things Notably absent is the power to heal, the power to do these things the way the disciples did. Remember, those were miraculous signs and wonders. We don't need signs and wonders. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. Yet much of the American church or the Western church in general has made a big deal out of this power. And we shout and we yell and, and you know, we've got the appearance of godliness, but without the power thereof. So, Kent, no, we don't have that same authority and power unless, on a case-by-case basis, Jesus gives it to you. I have been in situations where uh, Jesus gave me miraculous power. Um, One time uh, for two days in uh, Reynoso, uh, Reynoso, Mexico, uh, we were doing A Joy of Jesus. Uh, We had been learning Spanish a conversational Spanish uh, for a couple of months prior to the trip. We had a big group, 130 or so people from the church went down there to put on a joy of Jesus in one of the plazas. And and uh, uh, I got down there, and I don't speak Spanish. Uh, I got down there. I always travel with an interpreter. And when I was on the streets talking to people, my interpreter was with me. But for those two days, I didn't need her. Um I didn't need her at all. I could speak Spanish well enough that they understood me. I understood them. And people got saved. Just crazy amounts of people got saved just because God gave me that that power that one time. Now, we've been back to Mexico many times for ministry, and God's never done that before. It wasn't too long ago. This past year, I was in Durango. A uh, church we planted down there, and they were opening a, a free school or a school like we have. And uh, uh, pastor there, Jay Bentley, pray for Jay and 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 Carmen. Uh, just a wonderful guy. It's like a son to me. And uh, we went down there, and uh, he he's 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 the best translator I've ever had. And uh, I, I just said, okay, Lord, you gave me Spanish once. Give me Spanish again, so I don't need a translator. It didn't work. It didn't happen. So I had the power once to do it. Then in the park again, I remember uh, doing a, a little joy of Jesus on the far west side here in San Antonio many, many years ago. We were in a really, really tough neighborhood. And um, there was a, a guy who was strung out on heroin and no doubt other drugs as well. And he was very disruptive. And he was causing a scene. We're just trying to share Jesus with people. And we had music going and all this thing. And he got very, very disruptive. And Lord just had me go over there right in front of him. And I just looked him in the eye. And I put my hand on his shoulder. And I said, stop it. And instantly, this guy was high out of his mind, was instantly sober. Instantly he was sober. That was a power God gave me. I don't do that kind of stuff all the time. So it's on a case-by-case basis, Kent. And what we want to do is be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit because we can't do any of those things on our own. Good question. I like that. Here is an anonymous question. She says, I want to be married, but no one has come into my life. Should I keep asking God to bring a husband to me? Yeah, Anonymous, I think surely you should keep asking. Uh, It's the desire of your heart, but you have to be able to do it with thanksgiving. Paul says, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. So you can't have a bitter heart, and I'm not suggesting your question indicates you have a bitter heart at all, but you can't have a bitter heart. Well, God, you not answer my question, so uh, I'll just keep asking. You can't do it like that. With thanksgiving. God, thank you that you put this desire in my heart. And I want to be clear that when you have a desire to be married, it's a good thing. It's not good for man, and I would add, or woman, to be alone. And and so this is a good desire. It's a desire that God's put into your heart. So what you need to do, Anonymous, is let him prepare you for that man that he is preparing for you. 
And the only thing I can tell you is you've got to want Jesus more than you want a husband. I've had this this same question relative to babies, women who want babies. You've you got to want Jesus more than you want a baby. And in your particular case, wanting a husband, um, God can't bring somebody into your life until Jesus is first in your life. So uh, my counsel would be to examine your heart. God, you've given me this desire. I want to raise a child up to know you and love you. Uh, you can go to First Samuel, the beginning of the book, where, where Hannah is praying. She couldn't bear children, and she wanted a child. But Lord, I give this this child to you. God was preparing her for a very special child. In your case, God wants a very special husband for you. And you've got to have enough confidence in God, in his track record, to know that he's faithfully preparing somebody that you are in the process of being prepared for. So how do you get prepared quickly so this can happen more suddenly? Just say, Jesus, I am yours. You're the only husband I need. You're the only husband I want. And so you prepare me, Lord, for that moment when a man that has been prepared by you for me comes into my life. And then I'll serve you. Together we will serve you all the days of our life. And when you can truly get to that place, then and only then will you be in that place where God can bring you the man that he's preparing for you. Um, Please understand what I said. It's a good desire, but if that desire is more important than you desiring to be with Jesus, then you've got a priority problem. And I'm just suggesting. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from another anonymous in our email inbox. He or she says, If I know my heart is right with God, and if I believe God is telling me to do something based on his word, then I do what I believe God was telling me to do. Then I find out it was the wrong thing to do, Am I really hearing from God or was that a test that I failed if the outcome is wrong? No, I think sometimes God leads us into those situations uh, where we need to learn something. Now, I say all the time, Anonymous, if your heart's right with God, you don't have to be right. I think we humans, we put way too much um, pressure on ourselves to be right. And you know, the thing is, if your heart is right with God, God will protect you even when you're wrong. And you've got to trust that. I have done some things in our 27 years as a church here that I believe with all of my heart was from the Lord. And I was wrong. Now, he rescued me. He kept me from doing things. He let me go a way, way long time down that road. But he rescued me. He, he prevented me from making the decisions. You see, he was the one who was protecting me. I didn't have to protect myself, and he can protect me as long as my heart is right with him. Now, here's the thing that you've got to understand. It doesn't mean that you aren't hearing from God. What it means is that none of us hear from God perfectly. And I can tell you, in my case, it was a building that we were going to buy. If I would have gone ahead and done it, and I could have pushed through in my own strength, if I would have gone on and done it when Jesus was right there. And I mean, we were closing the deal. I was going to pick up the keys. If 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 he hadn't stopped me and I just sort of bogarted away and did it, um, our church wouldn't have wouldn't be open to the to today. Um but he was faithful to stop me. Now Immediately, the enemy says to me, way back then, this goes back a lot of years now, but immediately the enemy says, well, how how can you be sure you ever hear from God? That's not the question. The question is, Lord, thank you for saving me from making the bad decision. And to do that, we got to want what he wants. And I'll tell you something else, Anonymous. There are a lot of times when doing exactly what God wants you to do, and you heard from God to do it, Results won't be anything like we expected, and it will appear 
as though we hadn't really heard from God. We came to San Antonio, Texas, Paul and I, um, in 1995. And uh, from the moment we got here, it just never looked like it was the right choice. We knew it was, but it never, at least through circumstances, appeared like we made the right choice. And it's in those times of testing. 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's required that every man or woman given a trust by God must prove faithful. And sometimes you prove your faithfulness in crises like this. So don't doubt that you hear from God. Just if your heart is right with God and you're pretty convinced, especially when you, the Lord has spoken to you from his word, then go for it. I do a lot of things and I say, okay, Lord, uh, if this isn't right, you know my heart is right, so stop me or protect me. And he always does. We're doing one of those things right now, Anonymous. We're, we're trying to get a free restaurant started. And we're already running into obstacles with uh, occupancy permits and, and approval from city and city council, um, city management. Um, and, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, maybe I didn't hear from you, Lord. But, you know, by now, I know that I can trust the Lord. And he is working all things together for his good. And that's what we got to be sure of. So don't let the enemy talk you out of what you know is to do. God is more pleased when you take a step of faith because you think it's him and it turns out not to be him. He's far more pleased than that if you sit back and wait until you are absolutely sure or until circumstances all lined up. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, so you keep stepping out in faith. And don't let any other human convince you otherwise. I think that's one of the tests that God puts us through. Uh, frankly, in the, that incident I told you about with the building, I'd spent so much time on it, and I was so convinced. I mean, I'd convinced the elders and and uh, had people praying and all those things. Uh, it was embarrassing. You know, I wish I was sans ego, but I'm not. And it was embarrassing. And yet God says, go out on that limb and trust me. And he always, always proves faithful anonymous. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Kim. Kim says, I want to stop smoking, but it's really hard. Why won't God deliver me from this one thing I ask? Two things, Kim. He has already delivered you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to men. I have no doubt that you know a lot of people that are trying to quit smoking and are having a hard time. In other words, what you're going through is what other people are going through. You're not going through it all on your own. And then he says this, and God is faithful. It doesn't say Kim is faithful. It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. In other words, you don't give in to the temptation. So I realize it's hard, but see, what God wants to do sometimes is give you the hard thing to do. I always think when I get questions like this, I uh, always think of Joshua um, when when he runs into General Jesus um, just before the Canaan campaign begins. Um, Jesus says, we're going to Jericho. Now, Jericho was the fortified city. We know the second campaign stop in Canaan was Ai. Ai was a little tiny city. You and I, Kim, could beat Ai up with one hand tied behind our back. And Joshua could have said, well, why don't we start with AI, get a little practice? And God said, no, I want you to go to Jericho. And he gave him this silly battle plan. Um, but, but he had to believe. Well, you need to believe that cigarettes are not stronger than Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's what you've got to say. Jesus, I want to stop smoking to honor you. This isn't about anything else. And by the way, this exact principle works for losing weight, stopping drinking, uh, losing your temper, anything. Lord, I want to I stop smoking because I don't want my witness for you to be compromised. I don't want there to be anything between us. So Jesus, I know I can't stop on my own. In your case, you could say I've tried and it's so very hard. 
but I believe you. And I'm going to ask you, by the power of your Spirit, to help me, Lord. And then when you are tempted to smoke, get rid of all the stuff that can help you smoke. Get rid of your lighters and your cigarettes and your ashtrays and anything else. And and just say, okay, Lord, when I'm tempted to smoke, I'm instead going to pray. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to cry out to you for help. You see, Kim, we've already been delivered from these things. And God leaves those things in your life that he knows you need to overcome by trusting in him. So it's something he wants you to do. He'll empower you to do it. All you've got to do is make that commitment to doing it. And if you blow it, you know, when you start thinking about a cigarette, I need a cigarette, I need a cigarette, um, you need to think differently. Take those thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ. Say, no, I don't need a cigarette, Jesus. I need to be closer to you. And just see what God will do. But he's already delivered you from everything that you need to be delivered from. You know, Kim, I've known several people in our church over the years who were addicted to drugs, one to meth and one to to, uh, heroin, another one who couldn't go a day without smoking marijuana. And um, God delivered all three of those people instantly upon conversion from those things. But two of the three smoke cigarettes. And they knew God wanted to stop smoking cigarettes. And I've had them look me in the face and say, getting rid of meth or, 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 or getting rid of heroin addiction was easier than this. Why can't I do this? And I said, God left this one in your life. The other, why, why wouldn't God take this one from me? That's what you asked. Well, God left it in your life so you had something that costs you to give to him. David said, I will not give that to the Lord, which costs nothing. So what you do, Kim, is you say, Jesus... This is hard. This is a battle. And that's why I want to win it for your glory. And so I surrender it to you. And too many of us, we try to stop doing things we know we shouldn't do for us. Or we try to stop it in our own power. And that's always going to fail. It is always going to fail. Kim, so let God do it. Give it to him. He's left it in your life for a particular reason. We're inside now. Four minutes is even no phone calls, this half has gone pretty quickly. Um, here's, a, <laughs> I'm laughing at the question. I just read it. It's from Donald. He says, I'm pretty sure I know what you will say, but I'll ask anyway. Is Kenneth Copeland okay to listen to? Um, no. If you want to listen to Kenneth Copeland, uh, then reject Jesus Christ because you'll be able to hear Kenneth Copeland in hell. No, there's nothing that Kenneth Copeland has to say that is okay to listen to. He is a false teacher, an arrogant false teacher of the worst kind. Probably, now there's there's a lot of them compete for this spot, but he's probably the most evil, the most profanely wrong, profanely and profoundly wrong Bible, so-called Bible teacher that we have in our world. He's gotten filthy rich taking advantage of people. Well, you know, I like him. I was one day at the gym, and there was a a pastor uh, there that I only know casually. He's a really, really great guy. But he comes from a a prosperity background. And uh, he was on the treadmill, and he had earplugs in. And I said, what do you listen to? He goes, oh, I'm listening to Brother Copeland talk about integrity. And I looked at him. I said, he hasn't got anything at all to say about integrity. So, Donald, stay away from Kenneth Copeland. He is a liar, a false teacher, and he's caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. Okay, three minutes, maybe time for one more question. Monica says, Is there hope for a Christian who has turned from God and sinned deliberately for a couple of years? Uh, Monica, that's the best thing about our gospel. There's always hope. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. The whole idea of repentance is to come and be washed again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you're saved. You said you were saved. And you turn from God willfully or deliberately, is your word, into sin. Now, all you have to do is recognize that and say, Lord, what a fool I was. I'm so very sorry. 
and his arms are open wide. Read Luke chapter 15. It's about three stories about loss. And of course, the most famous one is the story of the prodigal son. He was the son of his father. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He did it anyway. And yet the father was scanning the horizon for him literally every day. Pounding heaven with prayers for his son, no doubt. And right now, that's what's happening to you, Monica. The devil will try to condemn you. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just come running back to Jesus. Tell him what a fool you've been. And tell him, I, I want desperately to come home to you. And as long as you're sincere, as long as you turn from the sin that you once turned to, his arms are open wide and he'll just welcome home and you'll be like that prodigal who was given a robe and sandals and a ring and a banquet was held in his honor. Monica, come home to Jesus and don't listen to what other people say. Don't listen to the enemy. Just take God's word at face value. Jesus said, and this is personal for you, Monica, come unto me, Monica, because you're heavy laden, because you're laboring. Come to me and I will give you rest. And that's what he's going to do. Well, the phone's are quiet today. I hope you enjoyed the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Paula will be live in studio tomorrow, so the program will be a lot better. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.